today. Baptism Sundays are, they're just, there's fun. It's exciting, a little more casual on Baptism Sunday. We started doing shirts now. Uh, so if you got baptized here and didn't get a shirt, sorry. Um, we started them now. And so just a fun way. So if you're not sure who got baptized when you go to the picnic later, uh, look for the ones wearing the shirt because they're just fun. And we just truly wanted to celebrate the fact that Christ saves. And so I encourage you to come and encourage those who gave their testimonies, who were baptized earlier, and just let them know how awesome it was to hear just how God worked in their life and encourage them for sharing. Um, as I said earlier, baptism is really one of two ordinances or sacraments that Jesus Christ has given to the church. The other one is communion, which we will celebrate at the end of this service. Uh, communion is, is done, uh, we practice it every week because in the book of Acts, we are told that as often as the church gathered together, they partook of communion. But, but baptism is different. Baptism isn't done weekly, at least for each person. Um, baptism is done once at the beginning of the Christian life. And baptism has an immense just amount of, of theological significance, which we're not going to be able to unpack all of that today. But I do want to just give three things that we are to think about when we see baptisms. Number one, and I said this earlier, baptism is a picture of the gospel. When you see a person going down into the water, then coming back up out of the water, rising again, you're seeing a picture of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. On the cross, he died, he was buried, then he rose and ascended. But baptism also signifies our union with Christ. In fact, this is probably the main significance that we focus on in our baptism class. Um, Paul uses the word baptism in Romans 6 as a means of explaining why Christians are no longer slaves to sin and why and how we live for Jesus. So Romans 6, 4, which I think is up here on the screen, it says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So um, we see that what has happened to Christ is now reckoned also to the believer because we are joined with them. When a Christian is saved, we are united to Christ and baptism is a physical picture that signifies that union. But the thing that we're going to focus on today, the third one, and what we're going to preach on, is that baptism particularly points to the victory the believer has in Christ. And I want us to see that today. Baptism is a sign of victory. That's the title of the message. When we witness a baptism, we're witnessing the defeat of sin, the defeat of death, the defeat of Satan. Baptism is about Jesus triumphing over evil. Baptism is about Jesus and his infinite strength overcoming his enemies. And because every Christian is united to Christ, baptism testifies that all who are in Christ are also victors. The Christian church will not be overcome. Death cannot and will not separate us from the love of Christ. The gates of hell and all their fury will not prevail against the church. And a physical picture of that, of that reminder, is, is baptism. And so the main point this morning uh, that I want us to see is that baptism testifies that all who trust in Christ will not be overcome by evil. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to stand. And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now our, 
Our primary text is verses 18 through 22. But I want to back up just a little bit to verse 13 so we see the flow of Peter's argument. So here we go, starting in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ Jesus may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning once again that we could witness four baptisms, four pictures of the gospel, of your death and your resurrection. And God, there is no greater truth than the fact that your son Jesus came 2,000 years ago, lived, died on a cross in order to take the punishment for our sins, that we who believe in you would be forgiven. And the proof, the evidence that we know that Jesus' death on the cross was satisfactory and accomplished all that you desired is that he rose. And God, I thank you that we have that picture that he rose. We thank you for the sacrament, the ordinance of baptism, that we get to personally just take part and share in the picture of the gospel through the going down into the water and the rising again. Lord, I pray that every person here knows that Baptism is a picture of the gospel, of what your son Jesus has done for us, and that we are solely saved on the basis of the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, be with us now as we look at your word. Give us wisdom, and Lord, I pray that our hearts would be full of zeal and joy as we look at what the apostle Peter is saying in regards to baptism. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Um, so what I want to do is, is I just want to flesh out a little bit of the argument that Paul is going to make here. Or Peter, just so you know, I'm going to say it wrong the whole time. I, if, when I say Paul, no, I'm saying Peter, unless if I mean Paul. Um, so it's up to you. You got this. Uh, if you have any questions, ask someone. Um, now, just so you know, so let's, let's just put it on one page. Verses 18 through 22 are possibly the most difficult per verses in the New Testament to translate and understand. The difficulty particularly lies within verses 19 through 20. Who are these spirits? 
where and when did Jesus actually go and, and talk to them? And what does it mean that he proclaimed? It's not the typical word for preaching that would be used. It's, it's more of a, a proclamation, a victorious um, charge that he is, he is letting be known. When and how does that all take place? The great reformer, Martin Luther, and this was funny. So as I'm studying this, every commentary quoted this. Every commentary. So I was like, well, obviously I'm supposed to share this quote. So here it is. This is the great reformer, Martin Luther. He said, a wonderful text is this. And a more obscure passage, perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it. All right. Well, so I'm going to explain the passage to you. Literally every commentary includes this. Um, it, there are difficulties with the text, um, but we don't need to be discouraged with Luther's words. Um, while the precise uh, meaning and, and wording of certain words within this text can be debated, um, the overall message, regardless of what translation or how you want to interpret certain ways of these words, you almost come to the same application no matter what. Um, so the meaning and the application is largely the same despite exactly what um, understanding you come at the end of this text. But in order for us to, to make sure we, we have an understanding of, of what Peter is saying here, I want to remind us what is Peter's point in the letter that he's writing. So in chapter 1, verse 1, we read that Peter is writing to elect exiles. And that is a way to, to refer to Christians. He's writing to Christians who feel displaced. You're not just feel, but they are displaced. They're not at the center of society and their beliefs are certainly not held by the majority of those in their culture. And in chapter one, verses six through seven, Peter encourages the church to rejoice at the trials they're going through because these trials are preparing them for the return of Christ. So they're elect exiles, they're displaced, they're suffering Christians. So Peter's goal in this letter is to encourage and comfort suffering Christians who are on the outskirts of society. And you'll see that all throughout the letter. Now, to be clear, the context of this letter is really the normal state of the Christian church throughout the world. The church is not a political force that's, that's trying to take over the world. The church is made up of believers in Christ who are often looked down upon, viewed as foolish, or even considered enemies of the larger state they exist within. And that's been the majority view of Christians throughout history, although there have been periods and times of exceptions, which we even have seen in America at times. And we turn to chapter 3, and we begin looking at what is Peter saying leading up to verses 18 through 22. In verse 13, I'm just going to kind of summarize these verses. Uh, Peter says, you will avoid unnecessary trials by doing what is good. That's good to know, right? By living a godly life, you will avoid some unnecessary trials. But then comes verse 14. Even if you live a God-honoring, righteous life, you will still suffer. That's what he says, verse 14. Um, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So he says, if you live righteously, you'll avoid some suffering. But you will still suffer for righteousness' sake. Good works do not operate like mosquito repellent. 
Perfect church attendance, Bible reading and prayer do not keep trials and troubles from coming our way. Rather, we ought to see the Christian life more like a magnet. It, it attracts and it repels. There are going to be some in our culture that when they look at the life of the church, they're going to be attracted to it and say, I like that. I want that. That's amazing what they know and how they live. And they're going to want to hear the truth of the gospel. Then there's going to be those who, when they look at the life of the church, they're repelled by it. And they hate the church. And they malign and they slander the church. But Peter says at the end of verse 14, we do not need to fear those who can hurt us. So why? Why do we not need to do that? Well, two reasons. Verse 15, by living a God-honoring life in the face of adversity, we will have opportunity to share the gospel. It's important. Like, side note, verse 15 is often used, hey, just live a good life and people will want to know about the hope that you have in them or that you have in you. And so by just living a good life, people are going to be asking about the gospel. But the context is particularly within trials and suffering. So we need to know that. He's not just saying, live a good life, and, and people are all the time are going to be coming up to you. But particularly when you are suffering, when you're going through trials, continue to have faith in Christ, and people are going, what's that about? I want to know what that hope is. So make sure we, we stay within the context there. So the first thing why we don't need to fear those who can hurt us is because by living a God-honoring life, God very well may use the trials they're bringing upon us as a means of sharing the gospel that they would know Christ. Number two, those who slander us will be put to shame. They're either going to come to know Christ or they will continue to stand in opposition of the church and of Jesus and one day they will experience judgment. Verse 17, he now comes, he says, it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. So before we, before we keep going on, I want to point out that Peter makes it crystal clear that, the normal, that, that trials are the normal part of the Christian life. We see that. In fact, we just finished preaching through Job. So if you need a reminder of trials, go back, listen to the series on Job, we see that Job is, is a Christian who suffers. In fact, you cannot read the New Testament with any accuracy and then conclude that the prosperity gospel makes any sense. You cannot. 1 Peter 4.12 will say, we should not be surprised at trials when they come our way. James, the very brother of Jesus, literally says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. A couple of years ago, we preached through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is about encouraging Christians who are facing trials to persevere and keep running the race. The book of Jude, another brother of Jesus, warns the church about, about false teachers sneaking into the church trying to cause division. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, the church will be attacked by wolves from within. Revelation shows that not only will the church have internal struggles, but that the social and political structures of the world will stand and oppose the church. Paul tells Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then Luke 9.23, which I think we quoted last week or the week before, Jesus himself says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
There's nothing about the New Testament that says, if you follow Christ in this life, at this moment, you will enjoy great prosperity. Now, when we do, great. But it's never a guarantee of the gospel. In fact, what we see is adversity waits us. Trials are coming. Good works won't keep them away. So how is Peter now going to encourage this church to press on? who is facing very real trials in their culture. What did they need to hear? What do we need to hear today so that when things do come, when trials come, we won't abandon the faith, but we'll have an anchor of Jesus Christ holding us to the very gospel that we believe. And so that's where we come now to verses 18 through 22. And there's really only two things I want us to see the victory of Christ, and the victory for believers. And so we'll break it down into that. We'll start off with the victory of Christ. Often you have more, um, more of an outline in your notes. You don't today. So you have more work to do. Uh, so feel free to, to keep up with notes. Verse 18, we see that Jesus Christ, the perfect, righteous Son of God, he suffered. The righteous for the unrighteous. So we have a godly, righteous person suffering for the unrighteous. His suffering accomplished the salvation of believers. That's what it means when it says he brought us to God. But Peter's focus at this moment is not so much on the suffering of Jesus. Peter did that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. So your homework later is to go read, what did Peter say then, and what was that about? But it's at that point that Peter said, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. So chapter 2, he zeroes in on the suffering of Christ and how that's an example on how we're to live. But that's not Peter's focus in chapter 3. Here, Peter focuses on the resurrection. Verse 18, Jesus suffered, was put to death in the flesh. That's what it means, crucified. And then at the end of verse 18, he's made alive in the spirit. He rose. He rose victorious from the grave. Death could not hold him. And then in verse 19, we come to this strange passage where he, he proclaims a message to the spirits in prison. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will use this passage as, as a means of defending their view of purgatory a difficulty, which is many difficulties with that, but a difficulty is that the word spirits in the New Testament never refers to people. Now physical, not like you and me, those made in the image of God. It always refers to angels, demons, some, something in the spiritual realm. Because verse 20 refers to the days of Noah, a possible and, and better feasible understanding of verses 19 through 20, as Jesus rose from the grave and proclaimed the victory to demons that rebelled against his rule. We'll just spend a moment here, but there's a strange passage in Genesis chapter 6 that speaks of possibly angels who have come from heaven, rebelled against God, disobeyed him, and have had sexual relations with women. Jude 6 seems to speak of this. Second Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 seem to allude to that. Now, regardless of exactly who these spirits are. The point is, Jesus rose from the grave in the power of the Spirit, and he proclaims this message of victory. And then in, verses, in verse 22, we now see he sits at the right hand of God the Father with all spiritual powers and authorities being subjected to him. Do you see the point then? Jesus died, yes, 
brought us to God, rose again, proclaimed a message of victory, enthroned in glory. Our Savior's not dead, he's alive. We must know that. He is alive. In fact, Revelation 1 gives this amazing picture of what Jesus looks like right now. It gives this picture of Jesus in glory, and in his hands he holds these keys of death and Hades, pointing to the fact that he has triumphed over them. Jesus has conquered death. As Christians, we do not worship a dead Savior. He is alive. He suffered, died, was buried, rose from the grave, is now exalted above all powers. To believe in the resurrection means we do not put our faith in a dead Savior, but the living, death-conquering, serpent-crushing, glory-shining, crown-wearing Savior and King, Jesus Christ. That is our King. That is what Peter wants us to see. Jesus is victorious, rose from the grave, brought us to God, and conquered death. So what's the point then? How does the victory of Jesus him conquering the grave, now encourage you and I to persevere when we're surrounded in trials and pains and evils. Because the victory of Jesus is not only for Jesus, but also for believers. We have to know that. Remember, Jesus died to bring us to God. We talked earlier about how baptism is about union. What happened to Christ is now also applied to us. His resurrection is our resurrection. So this brings us to the next point, the victory for believers. So the victory of Christ is the victory for believers. And verse 21 says, baptism corresponds to this, to which you and I go, corresponds to what? Like all of a sudden we're talking about baptism. Out of nowhere, it feels like. But if you look back at verse 20, Peter refers to the time of the flood. Now, if you're a little rusty on Bible history, we'll walk through the flood real quick. Since sin came into the world in Genesis 3, we see that humanity just continues in sin and becomes more and more wicked. In fact, what appears to happen is that not only are, are humans, but also there are angels who have rebelled against God, had sexual relations with women. Sin has corrupted all of creation. All who were created, to worship God, to honor him, are, are now living in disobedience to God. And so we see that when, when the time for patience and the time for kindness had come to an end, God brings judgment unto the world. He, he floods the earth, water, immense water, 40 days, nonstop rain. We think we know rain in Washington. Like this would have put us to shame here. 40 days, Nonstop, heavy, heavy rain. Judgment of God against all of creation, all of humanity, all of creation destroyed. Almost all of humanity is destroyed. We then see Noah and his small family in verse 20 of eight people are placed in an ark and they're kept safe. They were placed in an ark, carried safely through the waters of judgment. So don't, don't miss the connection here. Peter's writing to a small group of Christians that feel as though they're surrounded by evil. The church today is a relatively small group of people in almost every society. Throughout the world, believers are slandered, neglected, maligned, and persecuted for their faith. 
There are times in every culture and society where Christians can feel as though they're completely surrounded by evil. The political system, the judicial system, school boards, neighborhoods, businesses, hospitals, all of those and so much more might very well be bent on making decisions that outright defy the word of God and threaten the life of the church. And we feel that sometimes, feel like there's a pressure coming. We might wonder, is there hope for the church? Can we survive? Will we survive? Some of you have wondered that. I know some of you have friends that wonder that. What do we need to hear at that moment? What do we need to remember? Peter says, baptism is what we need to know. Just as Noah and his family were safe in an ark, so baptism testifies that all who believe in Christ are kept safe. See the symbolism now? This ark is a picture in the days of Noah of what Christ does for the believer, protects them, guards them, keeps them safe from suffering and ultimately the very judgment of God because Jesus himself went and died on the cross so that we know he absorbed the full wrath of God. So there is no wrath left for you or for me or for anyone who has believed in Christ. The full wrath of God has been calculated and placed on Jesus at the cross. So he fully and absolutely satisfies the wrath of God. So there's no judgment left. So no matter what comes into your life, it is not judgment. It is not judgment. Now, it doesn't mean there won't be discipline and things. And, and, and the book of Hebrews, will talk about that. Other parts of the New Testament, will talk about purposes and reasons for why God will bring trials into our life. But they are not judgment. And when we, like maybe Noah, and you feel like you're in this culture completely surrounded by, by wickedness, rather than becoming anxious, we know that God has protected us and that we're in Christ. So that ultimately, we will never taste the judgment of God and the evil and the wickedness and the sufferings and the trials of this world will not overcome us. That's what Peter wants us to know right here by referring to baptism. Peter says there's at least two things. Jesus rose victorious over sin and death. When you see baptism, you're reminded Jesus rose victorious. Death couldn't hold him, and if he couldn't hold Jesus, the number two, second thing Peter wants us to know, it cannot hold you either. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor height, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of Christ. Now, Peter's quick to clarify, and we need this. Water baptism isn't about physical cleansing. There's no soap in that water. If you're dirty when you got in, you're dirty when you get out. In fact, you shared the dirt. <laughs> baptism points to great, unbreakable, unchanging spiritual truths. Verse 21, Peter says, baptism's not about the removal of dirt from your body. Nobody got in there and got physically cleaned unless you were really dirty before, maybe a little bit. But it's not about that at all. Rather, it's about spiritual truths. When one is baptized, Peter says, we're making an appeal or a pledge to God that we will live a godly life based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We persevere in the faith. We press on in trials because we know Christ has overcome and therefore in Christ, we too will overcome. The proof is Jesus rose from the grave. Now, this doesn't mean 
We cannot die from trials. We will not suffer. This doesn't mean that we're bulletproof, even if we have superhero complexes and act like it at times. But the beauty is, no matter what trial you're in, even if you die, you cannot be separated from Christ. That's what Peter wants us to know. That's why Paul said, Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The only reason death is gain is if it brings us into the presence of God. It is not gain if somehow we're now forever separated or we don't experience his presence and blessings. But to live is Christ, to die is gain, because at death we are with Christ. Death, evil, sin, the claws of Satan himself cannot hold on to you if you are in Christ. Now when writing this and looking at this and thinking about the Christians that Peter is writing to and thinking about this room, victory might not always be our mindset. You might not wake up each morning going, man, victory in Christ. Or sing the song that we did, victory in Jesus today. You might be here today and you feel more defeated than victorious. And I just want you to remember back to that first Saturday after Jesus was crucified. The disciples were afraid. They're up in, they're, they're in this upper room. That they're hiding. They thought Jesus was the Messiah, but, but now he's dead. And so they're, they're wrestling through with that and doubts and fears are flooding their minds and they feel defeated at that moment. But then if you just turn a few pages and you start going into the book of Acts, these defeated Fear-bound Christians are now running out into the streets, preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're healing people. They're boldly talking about Jesus at the cost of their own life. So what happened? What happens from Saturday to, to the book of Acts? Where they're bold and they're, they're preaching the gospel of Jesus. Sunday came. We need to know that. Sunday came. Jesus rose from the grave. If we are not careful, we can slip into a Saturday mindset. We get fixated on the world, on the evils in the world, and we slowly become filled with fear and worry. Our world is filled with people and forces who make decisions that directly defy God's word. We're told that we cannot talk about our faith at work without fear of losing our job. We're told that we have to affirm and accept all lifestyles as equal. We're told that if we disagree with the social and political norms in any way, digital or non-digital, then we will just be canceled. So we have all these fears and we're going, well, what do I do? How do we overcome these fears? How does Peter encourage us and strengthen us in our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what reminds us, what's our picture of the resurrection of Jesus? What is the physical reminder? Baptism. Baptism. Baptism is the joy that we see Christ rose, and now because we are in Christ, we too are victorious in Christ. Jesus rose, conquering sin and evil, and we overcome the paralyzing effect of Saturday by the victory of Jesus on Sunday. So know that if you're here and you're wrestling and you're, you've just had CNN and Fox and everything else just on at all times at your house, you're being bombarded by these messages or through social media, 
Or you're just staying on track with certain stats regarding whatever it is that you're fixated on and you just see evil seems to increase. If you're not careful, you're going to be brought into this Saturday mindset and just go, I don't know that we can stand firm. And the truth is, in ourselves, we can't. But because of Jesus, we are saved, united to Christ, that his victory is our victory, so that we know because he rose, we too will rise. Baptism reminds us of Jesus' victory, and because we are in Christ, we are victorious. So we should, we should long for these days of baptism. It truly is a time of joy, it's a time of assurance. You witnessed four baptisms today, which means you saw four times people coming out of the water, which means four times this morning you were reminded Jesus broke free from the grave and he rose victorious. Four times you you were reminded this morning Jesus is stronger. Jesus is greater. And in Christ, you are saved. There's victory in Christ and in nowhere else. So if you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, just as Christ overcomes, so you too overcome with him. Again, this doesn't mean trials and suffering doesn't come our way, but it does mean nothing is able to overcome us and nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. You are safe in Christ. You are victorious in Christ. I pray that you know Christ and have trusted in Jesus today. That's the message that I believe Peter wants us to have from baptism in 1 Peter 3. And so with that, I'm going to pray And then we're going to go and celebrate the second ordinance that we have, and we're going to do partake of communion this morning. Father, Father, what joy we have knowing that your son, Jesus Christ, overcame all evil. Your son, Jesus Christ, absorbed and satisfied your wrath and judgment. So we who believe in you are forgiven. We're given peace with you. We are justified. We are declared righteous so that we would never taste one ounce of judgment. May we know that. May we celebrate that. May we rejoice in that. As we look back in the Old Testament, Father, and we see the story of Noah, may we be reminded that as you kept Noah and his family safe, so in Christ we are safe. We are secure in Christ. Our assurance is in Christ. And the evidence, the proof for why we can have such great assurance is Jesus rose from the grave. Lord, may we as a church never, never, never forget Jesus rose from the grave. May that be the reminder that we need every day. May we wake up reminding ourselves Jesus rose. Jesus rose. He is victorious. No matter what comes our way, because we are in Christ, we share in his victory. May we know that, Jesus. God, through the power of your spirit, give us a love and a hunger for your word that we would satisfy our souls every day in your word, reminding ourselves of the truths of who you are, of who your son is, of what he has done for us. Died, buried, rose, ascended, and glorified. Because of that, Father, we know that if we believe in you, we will be glorified with you for all of eternity. And so God, thank you for baptisms today. I thank you for the four people who followed you in obedience to be baptized. I pray that our hearts are encouraged. And as we now take communion,
May our hearts be encouraged as we particularly remember that prior to your resurrection, you died and suffered on the cross so we could be forgiven. In your name, Jesus, amen.